For Cybercrime Radio, I'm David Browie. Joining me today is Sarah Luke, an Australian woman who's been served with a $1.2 US million legal notice, that's $1.8 million in Australian dollars, for trademark infringement and cyber squatting in the US, but she knew nothing about it. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Hi, David. You're welcome. So you've got a very interesting story to tell, and I appreciate you taking the time today to share it with us. First of all, tell us a bit about yourself. You live in Australia, in Byron Bay? Yeah, so I'm originally from Sydney, but moved up to Byron Bay about eight years ago with my four children. So I'm just a single mum of four children. And we moved here really for a better way of life. We just wanted a better focus on lifestyle, really, and to get away from the stress of the city. So we moved up here to be amongst nature, to be amongst a beautiful community, to start a new life for ourselves. And it's been fantastic. It's been amazing. It's certainly great to hear about that, but it sounds like it got a little bit less amazing about a year ago. You got a legal notice from the US. That sounds like it just kind of appeared one day. Tell us about what happened and how did it come in? What was your reaction after this happened? You know, it's hard to really know where it started, David. I was a part of the Medibank data breach. So that's where my understanding where it all started and my details as well as my children's were uploaded onto the dark web. And about a week after that, my PayPal account was hacked. So I received an email in my inbox saying, I think we've all received one of these emails before. And the email said, the email address on your PayPal account has been changed. If this was you, you don't have to do anything. And if this wasn't you, phone us. So I phoned them because I couldn't actually get into my PayPal account. I was locked out. So I phoned them straight away. And over the phone, the customer service assistant was able to unlock my PayPal account. And I could see straight up that there were a ream of transactions on there over the past two days that weren't anything to do with me. So it was a bit of a shock, actually. So how many transactions are we talking about and what sort of transactions? Yeah, approximately 230 transactions. And they were just products being sold through my account, all in US dollars, most of them under $100. So sitting around sort of $99, $95 US dollars. And I could see all the details of who had purchased the items. They were all around the world. The products were being sent all around the world. But then your account was being used to, to complete that financial part of it. Correct. This was inside of my PayPal account. And, you know, I said to the customer service agent, these are not my transactions. I don't know anything about this. That email address that had been changed on my account is not mine. You need to lock my account immediately because none of this is mine. I don't know what's happening. You know, it's like that process where it's just slowly unfolding before your eyes. My brain couldn't really keep up at the time. I was like, these aren't my transactions. I don't know what's happening here, but we need to lock my account immediately. So they did do that. And where did they go from there? Did they offer assistance to investigate what was going on? Did they refer you to authorities? What's the process from there once you discover that kind of mass fraud on an account? No, PayPal were not very full of assistance at the time. It was just me phoning PayPal saying, what's happening? What's happening? I phoned them numerous times. And then approximately a week later or a week and a half later, I got an email in my inbox, which was part of a lot of scam, well, I believed it was part of a lot of scam and spam emails that I was receiving. So since the Medibank data breach, I had been receiving huge amounts of phone calls and emails and text messages, and they were all spam notifications. So I received this email in my inbox, and I also believed that that was another scam. It was a whole list of legal jargon and legal documents, and you know, I had no idea what it is. So unbeknownst to me, I decided to trash that email along with all of the other spam emails that I'd been receiving up until that point. But that was actually a real email, that one, unlike all the other ones that I'd trashed. So that should not have been trashed in my trash box. 
So then I received a follow-up one about a week later. It was a couple of days before Christmas, actually, saying that I was due to appear in a telephonic hearing before the Port of Florida in the court case that was up against me. So, yeah, it was a huge shock, actually. A terrible Christmas present, actually, David. Well, we always hear about there being a lot more scam activity around the holiday season. The you know the Black Friday sales are a thing, and between then and Christmas, that people are buying. There's a lot of distraction, a lot of noise, and so it certainly makes sense that you would have thought, "Oh, this is just a scam." And when you hear that it's not, I can imagine that would have been more than a little bit of a shock. Where do you go from there? Did you appear? Did you start inquiring? How do you react to something when you find out that is in fact real? To be really honest with you, it's a busy time for me with four children on my own, you know, at Christmas time. And we were away as well at the time. So my focus wasn't on my emails and sort of what was going on behind the scenes. And it just took quite a while to land actually with me. There was a lot of notifications and legal jargon in the document that I didn't understand. I now realize that the first email that I'd received, I was being served. And the second email I received was stating that a temporary restraining order had been placed on my PayPal account and my other associated accounts. And then a third email I now know was an email saying that they were filing the lawsuit ex parte, which I had to Google. But it means that, you know, I don't have to be present in the court for the hearing to proceed. So that was taking place in the court of Florida. So they can basically present evidence, have a hearing put an order in place and you don't even have to be there or even know about it. This could be happening to people all the time and they would have no idea that they had now become the subject of an action. Correct. And I actually never knew that you could get served electronically. You know, my understanding is that someone had to turn up at your door with the papers and officially serve you, but it's my understanding now that you can get served electronically. So yes, I did read that initial email. Of course, I didn't understand it and I thought that was a spam email. However, how do they know that I actually even saw the email and that I actually read the email? So yeah, it seems very odd to me. Odd or not, it was definitely happening. Where do you go from there? Did you contact them? Did you get legal assistance in the US, legal assistance in Australia? How do you sort of respond in a meaningful way to something which has come as such a major shock? Well, not long after this, David, I received another email, which was further legal jargon, if you like. And now I now know it was a separate lawsuit. And this was taken out by the National Basketball Association. So the same thing was happening again, all over again. Once again, I got served. Once again, they placed a temporary restraining order on my account. And once again, it was filed ex parte. So this terminology I had seen before, and it started to slowly sink in that oh my goodness, I'm actually involved in two lawsuits. You know, I'm being erroneously sued as a defendant in two trademark infringement suits in the US. And that took a while to actually sink in for me. So I contacted quite a few lawyers in Australia asking for their assistance and I got bounced around between about six or eight lawyers in Australia. They were all saying, oh, it's not our area of jurisdiction because this is, you know, quite a specific area. This is IP, but not only is it IP law, but it's international IP because the suits are in the United States. So it was really difficult for me to find some help in Australia. So I just kept getting bounced around and just started trying at that point in time to do anything I could. So I tried all the government bodies from that point forward and started trying to jump up and down and make some noise. As you do. I mean, this happens a lot more than people probably realize. I had a look and in Australia, there's the Scam Watch service, which is run by the government's Competition and Consumer Commission. And they have received 17,140 reports of identity theft this year alone. 
with losses at nearly $8 million. And that's just the ones that are reported and that are known about. I mean, this is happening all the time and so many implications for each case that's happened. And particularly with the jurisdictional issues. Now you had Adidas, wasn't it? That was alleging that you had been selling counterfeit products online and the NBA as well. Yeah, correct. Both of those organizations actually. So yeah, there's two separate lawsuits that I'm involved with. So yeah, they were claiming that I was involved in selling counterfeit goods, which were infringing trademark laws and IP laws. So yeah, I don't sell merch, David. I don't trade. I barely use my PayPal account. I've had it for eight years and I've used it 17 times in eight years. And then all of a sudden in two days, I've used it 230 odd times in two days and to the value of $22,000. I mean, it's ludicrous that PayPal didn't pick up on that at the time, I feel. When you've got an unauthorized transaction in your bank, the bank is so quick to close your bank account down or lock your bank account and say, we've locked your bank. There's suspected unauthorized activity on your account. We're doing this to protect you. But PayPal did none of the sorts. This is the difference with a bank versus a fintech company, isn't it? There's different rules and regulations. A global company follows different rules. The banks are very tightly regulated here, and there's been a lot of pressure on them to tighten detection of fraud and that sort of thing. But it's not always the case. It sounds like this one slipped through and someone really knew what they were doing. Yeah. And, you know, I personally believe that PayPal should have had better safeguards in place in this day and age when we all have such a large online and digital footprint you know, and there's so much hacking and so much fraud going on in the online world. I believe this could absolutely have been prevented. Unfortunately for me, it wasn't. Most definitely, unfortunately. Now, when you talk about the Medibank hack, this was the hack last year where basically the entire customer base of Medibank, which is Australia's largest private health insurer, was compromised and millions of people had their information leaked. You've pointed to that as probably the place where they got your information. Have you had any confirmation of that? How could that have gone from that hack to become a PayPal compromise? Yeah, look, David, I haven't had any confirmation. It's difficult to prove all this stuff, I believe. That's my understanding. There's a firm here in Australia called Cybertrace, which have been looking at a lot of my paperwork. And it's their understanding that it was Russian hackers who were hacking into my PayPal account because I have an activity log in my PayPal account showing all the IP addresses, the email addresses, where they've logged in from and all sorts of stuff. So There's a huge amount of information on that activity log, even though some of the information is not there. But what is there, you know, Cybertrace believes it was Russian hackers hacking in. So look, I can't prove anything. Medibank have not wanted a bar of me. They've just said, you know, you can't prove this. We don't want a bar of it. But the timing for me would seem... Suspicious. Suspicious. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) A few weeks later. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, I, mm. I believe so. Yeah. There was a lot of talk when the Medibank hack happened that this would be the outcome, that there would be a sort of surge in fraudulent activity. People would be targeted. A lot of times they don't even need all the information from one place. They can cross-match information from one source with another one and then represent themselves to PayPal and you know use your identity to get control of that account, basically. And you said that you got that email where they were changing the details. People that know the system seem to be able to manipulate it pretty well. Yeah. And on on the activity log, you can see the hackers probing my account. You can see numerous entries where they're probing my account. And after a week, they gained access. Interestingly so, David, at the same time, there was a credential stuffing attack on PayPal. And there was approximately 35,000 accounts in PayPal that were compromised by the credential stuffing attack. And they were over the same dates that my account was compromised between the 6th and the 8th of December, 2022. 
Now, PayPal have said that my account was not part of the credential stuffing attack, but it is over the same dates. But PayPal have never said how my account was compromised, but they have said that it wasn't part of the credential stuffing attack. So who knows? It's not very helpful. They can tell you a hundred things that it wasn't, but no one can tell you exactly what happened. And more importantly, I guess, what the repercussions are for the people that did it for yourself as well in the long term. It's a year later. Where do you find yourself now? Is there any resolution in sight? Have the authorities been able to determine anything or help really clarify what your actual liability is here? It's been a very long year, David. I've made reports to ID Care, the ACCC, which is the Scamwatch one you mentioned before, the ACSC, which is Cyberwatch, PayPal. I've made complaints to PayPal. I've made complaints to Medibank. I'm part of the Medibank class action. I've made a formal complaint to AFCA, which is the Australian Financial Complaints Authority against PayPal, because it's my belief that PayPal could have done more in the consumer protection side of things. You know, and they're governed by the payments code and the financial services license and all sorts of things. It's my understanding that they should provide better security and protection to their consumers. So I made a complaint to AFCA and that went through the ranks and got moved up to a senior resolution specialist. And the senior resolution specialist was presiding over this case for six months. So we went back and forth and it was very time consuming, very onerous. I had to get legal representation in Australia to help me decipher a lot of the documents and get through the paperwork because I was up against PayPal and they're a very, very large organization. So it felt very much like a David and Goliath battle. They have a huge amount of resources. They've got in-house legal teams and IT teams and all sorts of stuff. And then it's just me on my own. So I did need to get legal representation. Unfortunately, after six months, AFCA threw the case out on a technicality, which was extremely disappointing to me. And that technicality was that my claim exceeded the upper monetary limit inside of the AFCA rules. So they have an upper monetary limit of $1,085,000. And my claim was 1.8 million because that's the damages against me. So they won't deal with anything where the damages are higher than that, even though you had two separate cases going on. Correct. It's absolutely astounding. So from my point of view, people who have a claim over $1,085,000 really need some help, but there's no help in Australia. There's literally nowhere to go. After that case got thrown out, I went to the police. I filed a police report with the police and had that. I've been to the magistrate, stood up before the magistrate in Byron Bay because I had to get a Commonwealth victim certificate, which she didn't even know what that was. I went to my local MP, Justine Elliott. She, you know, is a great advocate for the constituents in her area, but she said she couldn't help me. So she referred me to Claire O'Neill's office down at the Office of Home Affairs in Canberra. She's the Federal Minister for Cybersecurity. She said she couldn't help me. She referred me to the Australian Federal Police. The Australian Federal Police said they couldn't help me and they referred me back to the New South Wales Police. So it's just being pushed around from department to department, no one saying they can help me. I really feel like I've fallen between the cracks. And that's why I went to the media in the end. That's the only way I saw that I could have a voice in this whole fiasco was by going to the media and getting a news report aired on the whole scenario. Well, it's so valuable to get your story out. And thanks, of course, for sharing it with us. I mean, this is incredibly immediate for you. It's ongoing. It's clearly a very stressful sort of thing to happen and just really from not having done anything wrong. Is there an understanding with the people that you're talking to that this was in fact fraudulent, that it wasn't you? Or is there anybody saying, well, maybe it was her? 
because certainly there's some people in the U.S. that think it was based on the documents. Have you had to make that argument as well, or is there an understanding generally that this is what's happened? Well, look, it is a minefield for me. First of all, I have no legal experience whatsoever. And secondly, I certainly do not understand any of the jargon and terminology in the U.S. in their legal system. So that's a whole different ballgame over there. I just need to take a step back, David. Part of my process in going to the media, my story was picked up by a company called Norton and they're a cyber safety brand. They have the in-house expertise to be able to help somebody like me. So they have reached out and offered some help, which has been amazing. So all of a sudden I feel seen and heard and that's really the first time that this has happened. So they have employed a US attorney on my behalf in the United States. And the U.S. attorney is at this point in time filing a notice of dismissal to the Florida court. This is in the Adidas case. So filing a notice of dismissal to the Florida court in trying to disentangle me from this court case, if you like. That's an ongoing matter in this point in time. And once we can get that motion approved, first of all, by Adidas and secondly, by the U.S. court, if and when we can get that approved and rubber stamp then my U.S. attorney will be approaching National Basketball Association and trying to do the same thing there. So there's a glimmer of hope, at least after all of this, that there's some path forward. You don't know where it's going to end up, but it's something at least. But gosh, it's taken you a while to get here. Well, yeah. I mean, the idea is that I'll be exonerated via a court order. So that's, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, if you like, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for me, if I, if I can get that done. So that will disentangle me from the lawsuit and also wipe out the damages bill. Well, definitely good luck with it all. And I certainly hope that it resolves itself quickly and you can get on with other things in life. This sort of thing can become very consuming and very problematic as you well have experienced in the last year. So best of luck with it also. Thank you, David. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. For Cybercrime Radio, I'm David Browie. Joining me today was Sarah Luke, an Australian woman who's fighting a 1.2 million US dollar legal judgment handed down after cybercriminals stole her identity and used it to run illegal activities online. For more of our media, visit cybersecurityventures.com. <laughs>